0: It, like, oh. it could be worse, and I know I've done worse, so all I can kind of do is say, "Try not." here we are on a nice Sunday morning, and it's great to have uh, above freezing temperatures. <laughs> it's way above it, actually. So we thank the Lord for any day that I Every day, but it is great as we uh, have spring approaching us. Something to really look forward to, isn't it, after coming out of those below zero temperatures? And now we look at it and we go, Yeah, things are going to be turning real quick. It is always a pleasure to be amongst God's people on a Sunday morning. As we worship God together and as we get into the Word of God now, uh, the most precious part of our worship is going in and seeing what He says about Himself and what His plan is to do. You know, the Lord, down through the ages, all the way through Scripture, reminds us of His promises. His promises are very precious to us. For without those promises, why would we even be here today, right? But, you know, when you look also, He made promises to His people, Israel, that salvation would be coming to them. In Romans 11.25 it says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the Fathers, for the gifts of and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, what Paul is saying is that there's really a promise to the nation there of their ultimate salvation. We didn't see it, uh, especially the first time when Jesus came. He came to His own, and His own received Him. Not very sad. But there have been certain Jews that did come to salvation. We know that. There were thousands even early on. But as a whole, the nation did not take a hold of faith. And even though God has a covenant with this nation, there are individuals that have to be in that covenant individually too, though. So there was a promise of ultimate salvation. God's covenant is very important and Leviticus, way back in the Pentateuch, in chapter 26:44, it says, Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will remember for them the covenant with the ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So nothing is going to change God's unbreakable promise. Not only is that promise to Israel as a nation, but it's a promise to all His people. When He makes a promise, He is the promise keeper. And we are the promise breakers. But thankfully, in an unconditional way, God has made an unconditional covenant. With his chosen people. uh, Which are all believers. But as we look just upon this group of people. That he started his work with. Look at this promise here in Jeremiah 31, 35. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day. And the fixed order of the moon. And the stars for light by night. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation from before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, if that can all be found out by human beings, then I'll also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord." That means that uh, really of all that God has made in his creation, if it ever falters, and it never has, and he actually promises that it never will, but if it falters, then his promise to Israel and to us and all the other promises will be broken. But there he's talking about the nation itself that he started with, and, and as he talks to Jeremiah, and of course there is a great warning about the judgment that was to be coming to them. So we can see that God's promises are very important. They come all the way to each one of us individually, don't they? So now where are we at in Revelation? We are at a pause, actually, P-A-U-S-E. And it's a parenthesis, it's an interlude... Uh, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, that's where we were at last time in chapter 10. Chapter 10 was dealing with, as you remember, the, the little book, and there was a mighty angel, and the mighty angel gave the book to John to eat, and it was sweet and it was bitter. It's sweet as far as the Word of God is concerned and His future and everything that He gives us, but it's bitter because of the terrible judgments that have to be made by Him, which we see when we look at Revelation week after week. It's sweet, but it's bitter. But it's a good thing because this is what God has designed. So that's where we're at. God will be gracious... And we see Him gracious in every section of Revelation as we go through this. Still, God will be gracious as He sends judgment, as He sends fury, as He sends vengeance and wrath. God is gracious. And that is what we know to be true. And I believe that during the tribulation, He still has a plan for this nation, Israel. As we saw the 144,000 in chapter 7, that was an interlude also. And then he talked about the Gentiles. They're all saved the same way. Do not be mistaken. They're saved by the grace of God because of the work that was done on the cross by Christ. They're just people that have been assigned different roles in the sense of what they do here. It's just like we have different roles in the body of Christ. Well, he promises to the fathers first, and then that goes to the people, and then we get in on that promised theology also. And so if He's true to them, He'll be true to us. If He's not true to them, what guarantee do we have? Nothing. That would make Him a liar. And God does not lie. So we know that there's a certain group of people that will be protected from physical death, through this terrible, horrible time. And in chapter 11, now we're going to meet two other people called the two witnesses. And then you have 144,000. They are instruments of the great harvest that's going to come right before Jesus comes back. So we talk about revival constantly, don't we? Don't we want that to happen? I mean, right now. We're not in the great tribulation, are we? We're not. But don't we want a revival? Absolutely. God puts that in our hearts. We want to see people come to the Lord. So many different ways that people do it, whether you, uh, we give to like certain ministries, whether there be certain uh, people that do things in foreign countries, or here, uh, there's just, just thousands of them. We pray for them, what have you. The missionaries and such. All over the globe, God uses all of these kind of ministries. Well, here's another one of the 144,000, and now these two witnesses. And they start preaching, and a tremendous response comes as a result of it. We read Romans chapter 11.25, where it says, I don't want you to be informed of this mystery, but speaking about that nation... In that same chapter, he's talking about Gentiles that are put into the vine. He also says that now, according to what I've said before, I have a plan to put them in, and so all Israel will be saved. Whatever all Israel is, I don't know all, but I can tell you whoever's living that God has chosen out of them, they will be saved at that time. And uh, whether it be for a a little bitty few moments or whether it be for a few days, uh, the thing is, the emphasis here is the response that comes from Israel and not only the, the Gentiles, but the temple is going to be introduced in our chapter today along with the two Jewish witnesses. So it is really emphasizing Israel here and how they play, and like I say, everybody is saved by grace, saved by the work of Christ on the cross. Israel is not saved by their temple or the sacrifices they did, but it pointed towards the ultimate salvation found at the cross in Christ. So now let's grab our Bibles, we're going to read chapter 11, uh, 1 through 14 today. We're not going to be able to cover the whole chapter but we'll do best, our best to do the 14 verses. Then there was given unto me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months And I'll grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet. And great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Let's pray. Father, in such a text that is remarkable, some things are beyond our thoughts here. Incredible things happening here as we have a temple, and we have two witnesses, and we have uh, people that uh, these witnesses actually, men uh, doing miracles that are just unbelievable. And we see that people still don't come to the Lord. Others do and praise God. It's the same thing that's happened down through the ages. And Lord, our desire is that people would come to Christ. And in some situation like this, it makes me wonder why wouldn't everybody come to Christ. Lord, thank you because you have brought us to life. Desiring your word and your truth and help us to be able to understand as much as we can here today so that we would know you. This is the revelation, the revealing, the uncovering of the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. And in his name we pray, amen. Okay, this is loaded. Got a lot of things happening here, a temple, a measuring rod. Yeah, the court of the Gentiles, 42 months, and that's just in the first verse or two. (laughs) We'll try to get to the rest of it, right? Uh, Measuring rod, there was given me a measuring rod. Now, John, who's writing this, it's interesting, it's like he just kind of takes part in this. He's there to see all this and record it down. And they say, okay, now do this. (laughs) And so he does it. In chapter 10, he was to go take the little book from the great big angel and take that from him and eat it. Now, you know, this is not everyday writing that somebody would have. I mean, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired writing, but yet you're going... Wow, a little book. you're eating a book, and now we have a, a measuring rod, a temple, a measuring rod. Okay? It's a reed, is what it is. It would be a, a certain length, and it measures the temple of God, the altar. Temple of God would be basically, you know, the, the holy place and the holy of Holies, the brazen altar, you know, as it mentions, the altar there. It's a kind of a part of the nation that they always identified. They're preserved by having a temple. It was very important to them. You know, How do they get their sins forgiven all those years? Well, of course, they all went to temple. They went to worship God. They went to the tabernacle beforehand. They had altars. They had animal sacrifices. And that was representing salvation. It was not taking away sin, but it did, in a a picture way, took away their sin until they needed to get forgiveness again. Which was, as soon as they walked out of there, they were ready to get forgiven again, right? But ultimately, it's going to be way ahead of time. It's going to be in the future where there is a cross that pays for their sin that paid for our sin, that paid for their sin. All they had was a picture book there, and they acted that out through every day. We know about that. Um, When you talk about a a measuring rod, it's interesting. In Zechariah, we have a a couple occasions where we have Scripture that we relate to today. Uh, Chapter 2 is one of them, and then 3 and 4 relate to it also. But it says in Zechariah 2 verse 1, Then I lifted up my eyes, Zechariah says, Looks and behold, and there was a man who had a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out and another angel was coming out to meet me. Anyway, we'll stop there for uh, because of time, but you have a, a measuring line It's going to measure measure Jerusalem. When you measure something, it's about what is mine. God possesses something. and 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 not only the something, but some people. And so who he's protecting and preserving here. Now we go to Revelation 21, verse 15, and we'll have a measuring again. In Ezekiel forty through forty-eight, there's measuring going on there also, which is dealing with the temple that is to come. And in twenty-one fifteen, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod. This time, this is gold, and that makes sense. It's not a reed because this is dealing with heaven to measure the city, the new. Jerusalem. And its gates and its wall. And there you have it's. It's made out as a square and it has length as great as the width. And he measures the city as a rod. It's 1,500 miles. It's length with width and height. are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements which are also angelic measurements. So anyway, measuring going on God is saying this is a set-apart place. This is real. It has measurements. It has dimensions. We're not talking about some kind of spiritual, ethereal thing that is just a spiritual thing It really has no physical meaning. When something is measured, I think we take note that it is for real. That it belongs to God. People belong to God that are part of it. I want to tell you something that's really fascinating. When did John write this book? Well, most say 95 A.D., somewhere thereabouts. When did 70 A.D. happen? Well, 25 years before this. What happened to the temple? It got destroyed, and it no longer stands. And, of course, Jesus... Uh, foretold that in Matthew 24.2 when he said not one stone would be left on top of another as they were talking about the temple. And he says it's all coming down. Well, did it do it in history? Yes, it did. So now John is seeing a temple. Is he seeing the temple of Herod? No, he's not. He's seeing a temple that is going to be built in the future. It's not the past tense, because all of this is in the future. And he's going to preserve something, and we're talking a temporal protection, not necessarily a temporal protection, because some of the people will die at that time, or close thereof, but there will be many that will live all the way to the time that Christ comes back. So we have the holy place, the holy of holies, the brazen altar the outer areas you know sacrifices you know people remember that he remembers that and now all of a sudden you have this i think this has to be encouraging to him because now he can anticipate that there is a temple to be built ezekiel talked about a temple but it's much bigger and that whole temple mount is going to be huge and the building is going to be huge this is going to be different But it is a temple. And it's something that John can look to and identify with. Wouldn't that mean something? Okay, just a moment. The temple mount. Today, there is a temple mount. Is there a temple on it? No. Okay, as far as the Jews were concerned, how do they get their sins forgiven? That's what I've always wanted to ask them. Well, they have to have a temple. Really? So how do they get it today? Well... Truly, if they become Christians, if they become believers, uh, it's because of the cross of Christ. But they have this yearning to build a temple on the Temple Mount, and they have been since the 80s. And uh, there was uh, one—I uh, think—scholar and you got architects involved. I think Gershom was one of them, and they still are looking for the time. When they can get that temple built on the Temple Mount. They just can't go out anywhere and build a temple. Like downtown Jerusalem. You can't build a temple there. It has to be on the Temple Mount. And that's where all those sacrifices were done. Going back to the time of Abraham. And of course then they had Tabernacle. And they moved around. But then they had the temple. That was built there during the time of Solomon. And of course it was blown away by the Babylonians. So it was rebuilt again. That's where Zechariah of course comes in. And, and in that book, and um, we have that it's going to be rebuilt. Uh, but I, I will tell you, back in the '80s, that on that Temple Mount, there is a Muslim temple. the the It's called the Dome of the Rock. There's a rock underneath it. And of course, that was supposed to be where the very temple had been built. And there's a rock there, but there is another rock. An archaeologist and uh, one who made a lot of studies on this, and he said, actually, that is not where the temple was. It's a hundred yards from there to the north, I think it was, or to the to the northeast, or maybe east. Anyway, uh, as he s- began to study that, there is a gazebo, and if you've ever seen any pictures of the Temple Mount, you'll see that dome of the rock, but about a hundred yards away from there is this little gazebo thing that's that's sticking up there. Underneath that is a rock, uh, and that is smooth, that is, it's huge, huge area, and With this archaeologist's study, I'm just saying here's what this guy presents. How could you ever get a temple up there with the Dome of the Rock, which is a mosque that is worshipping a false god? The Jews would not put a temple within 100 yards of that. It's got to go. Well, maybe not. Because, and, and they're thinking, well, it has to be in that place, so we've got to do something with it. Well, here's the, the position that is put forth. I'm just saying, hey, I don't know for sure. I really don't. But it is interesting to think about, and then we'll move on. If that is the place where the temple is to be built, when you have somebody come along like an antichrist who is a great negotiator, And all the world will be impressed by him as he would be able to make peace between the Muslims and the Jews. Would that be a miracle? Yes, it would. They are still enemies, despite some of the pacts and little kind of almost covenants made between each other. But they don't last long. But I will tell you, That there would be a possibility that there could be a wall that is built between the mosque and the new temple that would be built for this tribulation period. If that were to happen, then everybody's happy and the Antichrist is worshipped in a sense because of it or marveled by it. Uh, that would be very early on in the tribulation. Um, a future temple here that the people could relate to God with. And even though God never really saw the temple as the complete answer, it was a building block to Him. Now that's been fulfilled at the cross. But there's Jews that have the same thought that Jews had all throughout the Old Testament period, and they need that temple so they get it put up. And so we have what what could be here in chapter 11 of Revelation uh, that scenario. That's what I put forth. Look in Daniel chapter 9. And of course, don't have to be dogmatic about it, but it is very interesting as we look at Daniel 9.27 here is talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's been 69 weeks, 483 years, and then you've got one year left, 70th week, 69 weeks, 70th week, that's seven years to Jewish people. They uh, know what that means. It's so what he starts with in verse 24, and that's to, to make the end of sin, uh, make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, Right that there's a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which they did. That was built. And then all of a sudden, Jesus came and what happened? Well, He presents the Gospel. He's the answer to the Gospel. Then He's crucified. And, of course, He is buried and and such. It says in verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. He'll be killed. And have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And then he, He makes a firm covenant with the many for one week, for seven years. But in the middle of the week He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Uh, There's a picture of that in uh, Antiochus. Epiphanes, before Christ, Christ related to it. Then Christ talks about it. Well, again, it happened in 70 AD. But there is one that goes all the way... To the end is what we're talking about. This time period is to the end to make end of transgression, sin, uh, make atonement and such. It's during that time period. And so it's, it's a future situation not only for John, but for us too. So they're sacrificing. There is a, uh, a sanctuary in this city. Where would the Jews put a sanctuary or a temple on the Temple Mount, and so it needs to be built, there's not one there today, and John is here measuring this Temple, showing that there will be one built, so we've seen it in Daniel 9, let's look at Matthew 24 and the context there is Jesus speaking of the days that the apostles were asking about. When is it going to be? What's a sign of your coming, right? And Matthew 24 is famous for that. In verse 15, he's, during the time of great tribulation, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, which it did happen, Daniel prophesied of it, It did happen. Jesus knew about it. He speaks about it here. Standing in the holy place. What's the holy place? That's in the temple. Matter of fact, that would be the holy of holies. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. He's talking about somebody coming in, standing in the holy place and doing the abomination of desolation in this temple. Um so we go one more, and it's Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse four. So there are many verses, multiple verses that are speaking of a future temple. Second Thessalonians two four, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was with you? I was telling you these things. So Paul reiterates, he's talking about the great apostasy and talking about the lawless one, the activity of Satan. It's definitely just the time before Christ comes back. Uh, that mystery of lawlessness uh, is already at work, but there's a restrainer, and the restrainer will be removed, and everything will be allowed to do whatever it's going to do. Um, so, that is mentioned in Daniel, it's mentioned in Matthew by Jesus, mentioned by Paul in Thessalonians, and now John mentions it in Revelation. What what What's the temple about? Well, very possibly it could be what those previously are mentioning in scripture. And so the Antichrist could be quite the negotiator to make this temple happen and make the Jews ha- happy, wouldn't it? And if you know if they knocked down that uh, place of worship for the Muslims, what would happen? That you know, I would not want to be in Israel at that time. Because I got a feeling of one billion Arabs would be chasing them down, try to blow them away. But the Antichrist is going, to, as we see, work a covenant between him and Israel, and being able to make this happen. Now that's why John mentions this in Revelation. I think it's fascinating that he brings that up because he's thinking, what temple? What, what temple? What are we talking? It's already. It's, there's nothing here anymore. In Jerusalem, now granted he's seeing a vision, right? And so he's taking activity in this, and the court of the Gentiles is mentioned. Verse two: to Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure. It's given to the nations, and they will rent, uh, t- tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. Where's the holy city? Holy city is Jerusalem. Forty-two months. How long is that? Well, thirty-six months is three years. Six more months is a half a year. That's three and a half years. Um. The court of the Gentiles, it was always made so that the Gentiles who couldn't come into the temple area could at least be outside and they could be worshippers of the one true God. It allowed them to come and pray and so they were part of it. And now it's like, listen, the court of the Gentiles don't even measure it because they're treading underfoot. They've been doing it for how long? Well, you could think back, 2,000 years, go back further. Go all the way back to the temple that was during the time of Nebuchadnezzar when he captured Jerusalem, destroyed the city, actually, and destroyed the temple there. Do you see how important the, the temple is? It identifies with God's people and who they worship, doesn't it? And it's God identifying with them. But the times of the Gentiles... Have been here for a long time. And you go back to Egypt, the times of the Gentiles there, but they didn't have a temple then. But Nebuchadnezzar, and during that time we know that that, and then on through uh, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, all the way up to time right now today, it's still the times of the Gentiles. And eventually, it will be fulfilled. It says in Romans eleven twenty five, as we've mentioned earlier, the fullness of the Gentiles when it comes. That's when Christ comes back, and then their time is finally done. Um, anyway, a great climax are, is going to happen. We are living in this period of Gentiles' time today on the Temple Mount. The Gentiles rule. As a mosque to a false god who is there. So, they tread underfoot. Forty-two months, like we said earlier, uh, if you look in chapter 11, verse 3, that's where it says 1,260 days. Well, how many days is that? 360 in the Jewish calendar times four is... What is it? I don't know. Three and a half years, 1260 days, right? Um, Chapter 12, verse 6, mentioned again. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared. The woman representing Israel flees into the wilderness. Could be out into the area of Petra and Dead Sea area and all around that area. God's going to prepare a place for them to be protected from Antichrist and the nation so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. 1260 days. 42 months. This would be during the time of the great tribulation. The great Jacob's distress, as mentioned by Jeremiah. Three and a half years. It's the great tribulation, the last half of the tribulation. Wow, this is just mentioned over and over and over again. In chapter 12, verse 14, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and a half a time. Well, we've already been given what that is. In verse 6, 1260 days. So... Uh, 1260 days time times and a half a time is one times is two that's three and a half a time is a half so three and a half as the scholars say so 1260 days 42 months times times and a half a time Daniel mentions it we see it here in Revelation and it's uh, nothing new it's kept, uh, kept on being repeated throughout so we're giving a time period that uh, is in the future to John here. And now we go to the two witnesses. And it's found in verses 3 through 12. We spent a lot of time on these two verses, didn't we? Okay. Two witnesses. What does the law say about two witnesses? two or three witnesses to bear testimony. One single witness is not going to get it. So you look in Deuteronomy 19.15, we look back at the law and see what they said. They had a great law, didn't they? It was perfect. It came from God. Even the laws that even secular nations have today pattern somewhat after the law that has been given as far as murder and stealing and coveting and those kind of things unless it's a lawless nation, but that usually doesn't go over very good at all and that nation's not going to last. So God gives a law, but here it is to the Jews, a single witness shall not rise up against a man or account of any iniquity of any sin, which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. We can only do it whenever there is at least two. So here we have witnesses that are going to confirm Jesus Christ. What he did at the cross, who he is, and that he is coming back in judgment. And if you trust in him, then you see grace. Uh, they are dressed in what? Sackcloth. What does sackcloth mean? Well, in the Old Testament, prophets would wear sackcloth when they bring on judgment prophecies. Sackcloth is uh, actually meaning uh, mourning, grief, repentance. It's not a joyous time. It's a very sad, grieving time. These two witnesses are going to give prophecies or preaching of the coming judgments. Just like John the Baptist, you can say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said the same thing, didn't He? Okay, now we get to the two olives Olive trees and two lampstands. Now, we get all these symbols here, but they mean a lot. Now, in Jewish uh, history, we know that they were famous for grapes, you know, the vines. They were famous for the olive trees everywhere all over Israel. And, of course, Mount of Olives, where Jesus would pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. But... and. Those olives come from a tree and they were to be crushed. It was a a place of crushing Gethsemane. That's really what it means, Gethsemane. It's the press. And that's what believers have. Israel had it to them. They were pressed. They had much tribulation throughout their lifetime and so did all believers. We're pressed. We're tested. But in the end, out comes this oil, the olive oil, and it was meant to give them light, it was for health reasons, for cooking, they used a lot of olive oil, they still do today, and uh, probably a lot of you for health reasons realize that olive oil is about the best you can get. So uh, olive trees, two lampstands, they're representing that, well where did that come from? Well, it's just not coming out of the blue. It's coming out of a book that we mentioned earlier, Zechariah. Interesting The Zechariah lines up with Revelation a lot. The book of Daniel lines up with Revelation a lot. And so do many others. But those two books really stick out. So, we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 4 for a moment. The context here is Zerubbabel and uh, is going to build the temple again. It had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and now it's time to do that after 70 years. Remember that? Well, there was a revival that needed to be sparked for the people to build that temple. That's not going to be an easy thing to do to rebuild the temple. And so that's the context of Zechariah. Joshua the high priest, he's cleaned and, and uh, cleansed of his sin in chapter 3. Is we have a great vision there. In chapter 4, um, it says, verse 1, the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also, two olive trees by it and on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. And you know what? We did this in our Zechariah study, I don't know, a year or so ago on our Tuesday night studies. And the best we could get out of it is that you have a lampstand and an olive tree on each side as it says in the Scripture there. And then they are connected to this lampstand and the, you need the olive oil, right? Well, from it's like, here's what's going to happen. The olive oil is going to be, be a constant, uh, kind of a drains right into the, the yeah, a bowl, uh, the lampstand, from both of them, and it will be constant. It's like forever. It's really representing the Spirit of God that fulfills this. Those... Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, couldn't do anything without the Spirit of God, right? Nobody can do anything without the Spirit of God. That's what Zechariah 4 is about. You can't have a revival and people building a temple unless the Spirit of God is in this thing. And Zechariah 4, and I have to turn back there again, because it says, and you might remember this one, verse 6, Then he said to me, Zechariah, Zechariah, He's being spoken to. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's how they're going to get it done. That was at that time they rebuilt the temple The Spirit of God was there, and it was revived. There was a revival of the people. What what is going on at the time of John? Two witnesses representing the two olive trees, this time two lampstands by His Spirit. Says the Lord, that's how it's going to be done by these two witnesses who will spark a revival just as Joshua and Zechariah did after the Babylonian captivity. And the people came back and built it. They built the walls, they built the temple. It wasn't like it what it was before, but it was the temple. That's a light of spiritual revival. What is John seeing here? The light of a spiritual revival. It's connected with a temple, folks. If anybody knows anything about Zechariah, you go, oh, wow, this is a future one here. Well, let's move on and try to get an idea of these two witnesses. This is just packed isn't it? <laughs> There, two olive trees in verse four. Two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth, like a dragon. Fire coming out of it. you say that has got to be a spiritual meaning. There's no way that this can happen. Do you doubt some of the things that happened in the Old Testament? And you say, no, I don't, not at all. Were all those things literal? I mean, basically, I mean, you know, there's certain things you have to. Be careful, you know, not not wooden literalism. But for the most part, those things happen. Fire coming out of their mouths. Yeah, that's supernatural. There's a supernatural battle that's going on that you wouldn't believe what some of the angels and demons are doing. But these are men. They're going to be equipped with supernatural things. Do you believe of the exodus? and Moses and Aaron and some of the miracles that happened during the plagues and you remember the ten things that happened that were supernatural? God did it then. Do you believe that? Well, absolutely. you believe the Red Sea and the crossing of it? We sure do. We believe it. Why wouldn't we believe in this now? Well, a lot of people say, I can't believe that there's fire. It means the Word of God is being preached. And it slays them spiritually. That's what you'll probably get from some people. I can't buy that. Because why can't we take literal things in the future that just seem like, what, superhero stories? Well, these superhero stories go far beyond those stories we see of Superman and such. Fire coming out of their mouth devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them... He's going to be killed in this way. You know, one time would be enough. They're not going to have a second chance. <laughs> Boom. I mean, blowtorch. Carolyn has got me this blowtorch to get rid of snow on the driveway. <laughs> like that. I haven't used it yet. You know, I'm thinking, oh, it probably will backfire. You know. So, you know, okay, that's pretty cool. Somebody actually has done that. You know, you look on YouTube. They're doing it. Anyway, um, but this is coming out of their mouths, and uh, this is true. Uh, I, I, it's God's word, you know. Any, anything else, I'd go, oh no, I, I can't believe that. They're like some kind of ancient monsters, you know, dragons. And stuff. Do you believe in dragons? Do you believe in dinosaurs? Yeah, I believe dragons exist. I believe they had fire coming out of their mouths, literally. Why couldn't they have? Of course, the flood had a lot to do with that, didn't it? At the uh, end of their time but there' you know there's less likelihood that they will come back to these two witnesses and try to do something with them. The enemies will be devoured. who tries to do that if they try to harm them. I want to tell you this manner is the fact that they will be killed by these two witnesses it 's not pretty it 's not the days of cold war folks it 's the days of a very hot war. <laughs> fire coming out of their mouths. I I like that. But that's not the only thing. We're talking about drought, turning water into blood. Did it happen before? Yeah. Yeah. How about plagues? Yeah, they can cause plagues. We're not talking about China here. We're talking about these two witnesses that are going to cause plagues. Plagues. For anybody that causes trouble, they're making judgment and they're talking about judgment. Who are they? Well, there are a lot of ideas on this. I will at least speculate, but I think it goes beyond speculation because I think I've got a lot of Scripture to support it. It's at least a very scripturally based guess. But I think it's better than a guess. Much better. Many interpretations, of course some of them say, well that's representing the church. Uh, it's representing, oh they'll get a little, a little closer here actually, and a lot of people could uh, really squabble about this. You could be, uh, do you remember a guy by the Enoch who didn't die? He was and then he was not. He walked with the Lord and was not. The Lord just took him. And what a way to go! Yeah, a picture of that, what we know is called the rapture. Oh, rapio, harpazo, is it in the Greek? Taking you know, up. it means to be Taking taken up. up, snatched, taken away, caught up. So that could happen to us. I would like that. I'd prefer that. Wouldn't you? My, Amen. But whatever God has in mind, it's, man, that's just fine with me. It's okay, God. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I favor that. Yeah, sure, why not? Well, I don't even know if you could say in that vernacular. That's a cool thing. But, it, that's amazing. Uh, okay, so, uh, Enoch and another one be Elijah who was taken up in the whirlwind. You have the chariots. And you remember that, right? So, that would be two men. And I think that's pretty logical thinking. But I think I have to go a little bit further on this and use some more scripture. Uh, Who were the two that appeared at the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. And they were in on where Jesus was transfigured to show His glory, and there they were. But they'd gone to be with the Lord. Yes, but they came back. He said, well, okay, Elijah, I can see because I can understand that because he never died, but Moses did. Well, you know, actually, it's a strange thing about Moses too. Whenever he went up to Mount Nebo, uh, he died and, right, he's supposed to be buried. Deuteronomy says uh, some interesting words. No one knows where he's buried even to this day. Now, isn't that a strange thing? I think for one thing God didn't want his burial spot to be worshipped because that's what people do and Moses is like right at the height of all the heroes of Israel Moses, David, Abraham, right? And boy, they would like to, you know, to worship there but no, um, nobody knows where he's at. Um... How about Moses' burial place is not even known according to the book of Jude where it mentions the archangel and the devil had disputed concerning the body of Moses. I think that there was a further use that God had with that body of Moses. However that may be, I don't know. It is interesting though to think about. Uh, two witnesses would definitely fit, Moses and Elijah. For we read that the witnesses have power over the water to turn them to blood. Who did that? Moses did that by the power of God, obviously. It's God doing all of these miracles. He performed in the presence of Pharaoh in Egypt in those days. Uh, Moses already has on-the-job training. He's experienced at it. He's likely, I think, to be one of the two witnesses. And then I would call on uh, uh, the name of Elijah as we see him at the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ and uh, you know the, th- the three apostles. Uh, Elijah will appear again, as it says in the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter four verse five, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That was in Malachi. One of the what's the last book of the Old Testament? Uh, do we have Malachi there? Well, Malachi is in the last row back there almost, right? (laughs) The last book of the Old Testament. You'll see Malachi chapter 4 and then New Testament will start after that. So, um, that didn't happen in his time and hasn't happened. Some people would say, well, that's John the Baptist. And in a sense, he was... Uh, Jesus even referred to that he, and he came in the power of Elijah and of course he ate uh, honey, uh, what was it, locust, okay. locust, and, and uh, he had a very rough demeanor and what he wore and such like a prophet like Elijah. So, very much of that, but I take the sense that Elijah, who actually came back at the Mount of Transfiguration, God can do that, was that just something that Peter, James, and John just made up? Or is it real? Did they really come back alive? And I know anybody that I know as a Christian would say, well, yes, they did. But now all of a sudden it's like Elijah, well, no, that's, that's the church. That's just a believer. He represents all believers. Well, before the coming dreadful day of the Lord, which is this time period, is when he's going to come back. When Moses is going to come back. And so I present those two. And again, I don't have to be dogmatic, and I know there are many arguments with very good scholars, and I don't claim to even be on their their height at all. But I can say I have to take a side and I'm not going to give you all the views because I think most of them are absolutely stupid (laughs) and ridiculous. And they make no sense whatsoever. But this can make sense because what I just gave you are scriptures uh, of literal things that happened that can happen again. And they haven't happened, have they? Zechariah, I mean, um, as Zechariah talked about, Malachi talked about, Those things are yet to come. And John is bearing witness to that. But these guys are going to bear witness at the very last moment. They're going to do it for three and a half years. The last three and a half years is when these guys are going to be doing this thing. That means they are going to live and die and resurrect and ascend almost at the very time that Christ is coming back. Just before that, I would take it to be. Three and a half years. So... Now, here's what happens. Uh, we know that verse 6 says, rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. How about that for Elijah? He was able to stop the rain for three and a half years. Here, he has that power. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with their plague as often as they desire. Now, the last part, we've got a long ways to go, but I tell you what. Not a whole lot to be able to finish here, as I am near page 5. My last <laughs> page. They're trying to cut it to 4. Well, 14 verses, that, you know. Here we go. The witnesses are now killed by the beast. When they finish their testimony... Remember, witnesses, testimony, martyr race, testimony—that's what that means. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. They are going to be killed by the antichrist, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. I wonder what that is, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, one city, where also their Lord was crucified. It's just identified, where's this at? Jerusalem. doesn't say it, but Sodom and Egypt. You know, all the atrocities and all the evil that was committed and the homosexuality and lesbianism and all the transgressions that was at Sodom. Everybody knows about Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know of any cities that are named Sodom today? That means even people who don't believe in the Bible don't name it Sodom. I don't even know. I haven't even heard of Gomorrah. Have you guys? And who would name a city like that? Well, if Satan inspired them. But he names them that because evil things happen at those places. And you think of Egypt. Anyway, it's where the Lord was crucified. I got it. That's Jerusalem. This is real, folks. This is not some kind of figment of imagination. And they are humiliated. God's two men, who had torches, fire coming out of their mouths, and the blood red uh, was the waters and such. And you know what? Some actually, the Antichrist is able to take care of them. I'm sure everybody's been wanting to kill them. And this shows a sovereign God. If He wants somebody to live until a certain time, will it be done? Yes, no matter what. You can say, how can that happen if, if somebody came out of here with a gun and they wanted to kill me and they shot right through that door like that? It could happen, couldn't it? But what if God doesn't have it in his plan? It will not happen. It might hit the door and screen off and hit like that and they go running uh, you know, and fall down and trip, and the gun shoots them or something. I don't know. But do you see the Lord will make sure his plan always, 100% of the time, will come out the way that he does. I like that. That gives me comfort. That's what I like about these two witnesses. And that shows they are immortal until they are mortal. But they're real mortal. They are going to die. They're going to be killed. And, you know, I think about this and it seems dreadful But uh, humiliation here is what people in the Middle East and in the East have been known to do throughout the years. To leave their dead right in the streets where everybody could see them and let them be out there. No decent burial. They just rot. And people walk by and just look at it and just move on. So people are going to watch this. They're going to see it. But it's horrid. It's horrid. But you know what? How evil can people be? Nothing is more horrible than the rejoicing of this of the evil that these people have over a manifestation of God's goodness and grace and how He's done on this. His greatness of God. They laugh at it. And they may think they have overcome, folks, but the final analysis is this. God will overcome their horrible happiness of the apparent defeat of the plans of God. His purposes actually he's going to accomplish his own victory. Don't you like this? This. I mean, they had like a Christmas. They gave gifts to everyone at this time because they were so tired of these guys speaking about repentance and Jesus Christ dying for your sins and he's coming back. Do you guys catch that? Isn't this great? But it's not great when you see evil people make fun of God and His people. And that's exactly what they do. Because they made life difficult for the rest of the world. Because they could preach it all they want. How much of an impact is that going to be on the Jews as they are there right in Jerusalem preaching the Bible, and all of a sudden they are killed? And in three and a half days, that would make sure that they were dead wouldn't? It? and they are stinking. All of a sudden, what happens? They come back to life, standing there. If everybody's seeing this, they have TV, they have Internet, everybody all across the world can see this live on YouTube or whatever's going on at the time, and boom, there it is. Everybody sees it. It will be heard about. And the people who are rejoicing go, (laughs) yeah, this is a very sick feeling. It's going down. And you would expect what? Ultimate repentance. Everybody repents, right? No. But I can tell you what, I think there is a tremendous revival of Israel. And very soon, all Israel will be saved. And they will look upon Him whom they pierced and mourned for Him as the only Son, as Zechariah says. And as Revelation 1 says, and an axe. You know what? These men stand on their feet. These people are in terror as they see this resurrection. And you know What? They're saying, what in the world just happened? What do we do now? They are lost. They are undone. He says, come up here. They're standing. They're taken up. it up into heaven, into a cloud, just like Jesus, just like uh, Stephen, right? And you know what? There was one thing about them looking at the bodies and then kind of rejoicing about it and giving gifts to others. There's another thing about whenever they see them resurrected standing and then going up and the word there is it's it's actually kind of related to theater theater. theater. It's not just to look, but it's to look and ponder when he they are standing And then ascending. That would get your attention. You would really be seeing that, wouldn't you? Um, To look and to ponder, to theorize. And then, you remember at the cross there was an earthquake? Do you remember at the resurrection of Christ or that resurrection morning there was an earthquake? Right here, there is a resurrection, an ascension. There's an earthquake here in verse 13. And in that hour, there was a great... And it means mega. Mega earthquake. We've seen them all through Revelation so far. There's more to come. It's a tremendous rumbling. And 7,000 people are killed in this earthquake. Tenth of the city falls... Some become believers. Now we can understand this in two ways when you have this kind of thing happening. It's the glory of the Lord happening, isn't it? How else could you describe it? What else do you want? In Luke 17, verse 18 and 19. I have to take time just to read this. This comes from Jesus. And people want a miracle. If they can see that, they'll they'll become believers then, right? And it says in verse 36: two men will be filled, one will be taken, the other will be left. And answering said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where? Ah. I'm sorry. Man, I knew that wasn't right. Didn't feel right. 16:31? Um, um, and Luke 17:18 and 19. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. This is the miracle of the 10 lepers. God heals 10 lepers. How many came back to thank God? 1. Uh and, and 17 answered and said, "We we they're not 10 cleansed?" Jesus says, you know, uh but the, but the nine, where are they? Uh, Jesus knows, but he asked the the leper and he says, oh, "That had been healed. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner?" And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Right? Nine did not give thanks. Did not really acknowledge what had just happened. Here you have quite the miracle. And of course, even if they, if they had somebody, uh, like they had the prophets, didn't they? They had Moses and the prophets, and yet they still didn't believe. He says, if you won't believe that, you won't believe it if a dead man rises from the dead. And you know what? That's what you have right here. And so we close this out. In spite of divine judgment and catastrophic activities, men do not repent. And the second woe now is done. In 8.13 it talked about three woes. In chapter 9 verse 12 it was the first woe. This is the second woe. There is peril of unbelief. And yet there is also the ones who give glory to God. When something like this happens. How can you explain that? They are held responsible for how they respond to the glory of God. And... That's how God works. They are held responsible. They do not repent. They're terrified. Some give glory to God. That's the way it always works. till one day there's no more sin. All will glorify Him in heaven. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and may you be honored today, as we have sang and prayed and spoken words of God in response, giving, and all this time of worship, Lord, because it's an honor to do that, because you are the one to honor. Thank you for giving us quite the privilege. In your Son's name we pray, amen. amen. Number six, I do believe it is. I'm going to say this this time. Right, Audrey? Last week, I forgot. It was in the bulletin. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Amen? Amen. We could sing that, couldn't we? (laughs) It is a song. Very good.